What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Quiet Part Loud podcast. This is episode 133. My guest today is Lee Parker. Lee is a program and grants manager for Laureus Sport for Good. Laureus are a grants foundation that connect charities and programs and initiatives around the world with funding and guidance and strategy assistance and all of the things that we'll get into during the episode but it was just great to talk to Lee about his motivations and some of his passions and what led him into the world of you know charity and and, and supporting hard hit regions around the world um, and trying to bring them up uh, through the power of sport it was a great conversation, and Lee is a wonderful guy. I had a pleasure talking to him, and we're definitely going to have him back to talk more about the detail around his motivation and his story and growing up because we didn't get time to do that on this episode. But nevertheless, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you guys to uh, do as well. So without any further ado, please welcome Lee Parker. Shut up and sit down. Schedules of line, so that's good. That's true, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, everything's been been as good as it can be, you know. Um, everything that's going on in the world right now has uh, has given me perspective. Um, you know, even though, like you say, we're doing nine to five, we're lucky to be doing nine to five. There's people out there who've lost jobs, and, and you know, it's getting really bad in some places. Um, it's, and we're, we're quite lucky, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty catastrophic, and I think you know, as bad as the situation has been to this point, you know, we're, there's, there's more to come in other facets of how it's going to disrupt life. And that's going to be where a lot of the additional heartache comes and and struggle comes for, for a lot of people. So I'm just trying to buckle down and, and like you said, just count my lucky stars that we're still able to do that work and, you know, do things like this on the side as well. It's, uh, you know, it's not everybody's opportunity. And, and I, I do recognize how lucky we are to, to do that. And that's got to be the main focus, right? Because there's people out there, you know, yeah. that are going through a lot harder time. And, you know, that's actually, that's actually kind of, you know, topical in, in terms of, you know, some of the things we're going to talk about today. Yeah, yeah. And uh, indeed, you're right. And it's, it's yeah, you've, you've got the perspective, but at the same time, you've got to look at both positive and negative And, I don't know about you, but I can imagine you've had more time to do things that you didn't think you could do before, um, even though you're doing nine to five, you know, saving yourselves on commuting to stuff, you can do other things. Um, I've definitely engrossed in a lot of television, and, uh, <laughs> touched on, the, you know, I've, yeah, things like The Last Dance, you know, I've, I've had a lot of time to really appreciate things like that. And, um that's that that's you know with with bad stuff comes the good stuff as well yeah and and take and take time to appreciate the little stuff as well right Uh, so Mm -hmm. what did you think of the last dance listen i don't think we have enough time to even (laughs) touch on that um i'm sure you know you you must know i I am a bit of a basketball aficionado and well we connected um, through tony lazar at uh at london basketball didn't we so uh I knew there yeah. was some sort of uh, kismet <laughs> energy that had to come out of that, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Tony. Shout out to Tony. But um, 
100%. Yeah, with, with, with Last Dance, it was, uh, do you know what? I'm surprised. I'm just surprised so many people are seeing the greatness that is Michael Jordan now. You know, they, they've only seen him as, a, as an icon on TV or, you know, Space Jam or the logo. They, you know, they, they never understood the nitty gritty behind uh, his life yeah. and the death of his dad and stuff. Exactly. And for a lot of people, especially those that didn't grow up, how old are you, Tony? Uh, how old are you, Lee? 35. Right. Okay, cool. So we're similar age. Yeah. So we grew up in it, right? And we got to experience it, whether yeah. you loved the Bulls or you hated the Bulls, you loved MJ, but you hated MJ, you know, all of that stuff as well. But to kids these days, I think he's more considered a fashion designer because they know yeah. his shoes. They don't know the story of how the shoes came about or why they're so popular or, you know, the man behind the brand and, and all of that. And it's, uh, I'm glad that people got to to get a candid look at the man and, and what his mindset was in terms of, you know, what led him to, yeah. to that greatness and that stature that we all now know him by. Yeah. And I mean, I still haven't even seen the last two episodes. I make it on purpose. I do this on purpose. I wait till Friday nights to actually sit there and watch these episodes because that, you know, that's, that's how much these things mean to me. And, and you know, I wouldn't yeah. just watch it on any Monday night and during lockdown, I can look forward to something. And one of the things that I've, I've spoken to a lot of people around, like, you know, they, they now see him in a different light and saying that, did he have to be that mean to win? You know? And it, it touches on what I'm going to talk about when it comes to sport, that yeah. sport can do a lot of things for people. But when it comes down to elite sport and competitive sport, you can look at it like war. You know, it's a different type. It's not to be the best in a sport. It's not the same to be the best in, you know, in the office or or something that doesn't involve the physical nature of actually dominating someone and, and using the mentality that it's killed or be killed. And I think people are starting to wrap their heads around that. And there's a good quote where he says, I think it was at the end of episode seven, and he says, uh, you know, leadership has a price, winning has a price. He did, you know, he challenges people that didn't want to be challenged and he, he, got, he gets emotional, right? And he, yeah. he breaks down a little bit. Absolutely. And he says, I've earned that right. And the, the Detroit Pistons beat him down to the point where he didn't want people to be going through what he went through. And, you know, that's the other side of, of, of uh, what he's trying to do. But that wouldn't fly in the office, you know. So. Absolutely not. That wouldn't even fly in the NBA today. Yeah. It's a different league. But I think people... I listened to a guy, his name's Eric Thomas. He's a, he's a motivational speaker, E.T. the Hip Hop Preacher, his, his name is. And, uh, and he puts a lot of things out there in a really cool way. But one of, the, one of the quotes he's got is, everybody wants to be a beast until it's time to do what a beast does. Right? Uh, and everybody wants to be Michael Jordan. Everybody wants to be that, that, that kind of, that, that persona, that personified kind of, winner or mm. success story but there's certain things that you have to do to, in order to be able to get there and our society's changed so much since michael jordan's time that that kind of attitude in general is pushed off to the side as toxic and not welcome yeah. and not productive you know what i mean so it's just it, it's a really interesting dynamic for people who again didn't see that don't know those times you know 
yeah. to see what exactly. a winner did and had to do. And if they think it's any different for Kobe or LeBron or any of these other super successful, go down any industry, Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. If you don't think every one of them is a maniacal, obsessed, atypical winner, then you're fooling yourself. Exactly. It's, it's the work that, no, you know, when you pull that curtain and you see what is involved to get to that, there's, there's a massive, you know, I, I look at Michael Jordan and you see him, he doesn't give many interviews. He's been out of the limelight for 20 years. He tried to be the, the owner of the, the Bobcats. You know, right. He tried to dip his toe in that. I, I believe the price he's paid, he's still living in that era. You know, I, I think he's still living in 98 or part of him is still not moved on because that's all he ever thought about. Um, whereas you look at, you know, and, and, and it's a question of uh, him being a, a product of a society where there wasn't social media and there wasn't, uh, you know, wokeness and, and things like that that made you think about having another career or thinking about things like Kobe did after he was retiring. He started to invest in girls' basketball and Absolutely. he had another life after his, before he died. You know, you could tell he was going to go to another level, right? Absolutely. And, and the, the same with LeBron with the school and the stuff that he's doing and, Jordan never really had that, you know, he's, no. <laughs> I think that was, that's a massive price, but also it's, it's important to compare context uh, about where he was coming from in a different generation. Absolutely. And I mean, one thing I did learn, like there was a few things that I did learn from the last dance or, or like learn that I didn't know from that era. And one of them was the guy that used to hang with Jordan after his dad died, who became that father <laughs> figure for him. I didn't know that. And I think right. that craving of just winning, 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 adding accolades, accolades, and, and more trophies was, was number one, more than anything, yeah. to try to just set himself up so there was no denying anything. Whereas I think those other two examples, Kobe and LeBron, they've learned from that because they were very close to him. So they've probably seen mm -hmm. some of those demons on the other side as well and been yeah. able to take that and then not only evolve the game, but evolve the like extra curricular stuff that you do after basketball yeah like the schools like the girls foundations that kobe did before he died like lebron etc you know and michael just seemed to be win just win yeah. nothing else just singular focus that's it no matter what like yeah. carl malone got the mvp so that was enough i i had to destroy him bj armstrong made <laughs> yeah. one comment so he couldn't score any more you know what i mean like yeah that is, I mean, that, that, that mentality of making stuff up in your head. Yeah. Making stuff up that someone said that. I don't know if I believe that completely. I don't know if he's pulling my chain a little. Well, he's had 20 years. To, he's had 20 years to make it as much of, uh, you know, uh, a kind of mythical story as possible as well. So, yeah. you know, I'm sure there's some That's dramatization incredible. added. But yeah. all you had to do was watch that man play and you understood what the greatness with him was. All you had to yeah. do was see basketball before the Olympics versus after the Olympics to know what he did, you know? And when they make yeah. statements like Michael Jordan was not only the greatest basketball player, but probably the greatest sportsman in any sport and as close to perfect as in any sport as you can get, that really kind of adds context. This series here has now added context to that statement. And yeah. for me personally, there is no conversation. Uh, Kobe's my favorite player, followed by Magic Johnson. Mm -hmm. I grew up hating Michael Jordan because before I became a Lakers fan, I was a uh, Seattle Supersonics fan. So it was always that West Coast and I was getting beaten by the East in some respect or another, right? So um, yeah. I, I grew up hating the guy, but 
you can only marvel at what he did and take, you know, a retrospective look at it to say, you know, I'm lucky I got to see him play. I'm lucky I got to see that era. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take too much time. I could talk about this all day, but I have to give a <laughs> shout out to Dennis Rodman as well. I think that part of the story, you know what? He epitomizes like the perfect work life balance. You know, hundred <laughs> percent. He's enjoying himself. He's like, if you give me this time off, I will come back and reward you. <laughs> just let you me know, be. It's amazing. Yeah, just, just let yeah. me be. Yeah, and and I think that uncovered a lot about how the media portrayed him during that period versus how his teammates saw him and what he actually produced. Because we all knew Dennis Rodman was a beast. We all knew that like this addition to the Bulls was what they needed after Horace was gone and, you know, how they needed to take it up another level. And anybody that knew Dennis Rodman knew what a baller he was, but it was just this media, you know, it was this media narrative that they had that he was just some wild party boy. And he was, but he got the job done, you know, at the end of the day, but I think it was a great light for him. Yeah. And, you know, this all links to the sport can, you know, transcend into politics, to media, if you took Dennis Rodman's example and someone in the Premier League did what he did, like even now, you know, dyeing their hair and ear piercings, tattoos, it was more, more accepted in the NBA because of the, the culture behind it. And if you put that now in the Premier League or in, in football and soccer, there's, they, there's, those players will get vilified. You know, you've seen it 100%. with the Raheem Sterlings and the Balotellis and, and it just becomes normalized to the media. But this stuff happened years ago at Elite Sport. And um, Absolutely. I think it's just, it's, just, it's just amazing, interesting how different parts of society can portray in different ways and, and how that ends up. And what they'll accept. What they'll accept yeah. as normal. What they'll accept as part of the team. I mean, we can flip it back to the other side of the pond. And all you have to do is look at the lack of you know, openly gay athletes in any sport. You yeah. know, and there's almost yeah. none. And the only one, the ones that are most prominent are probably female mixed martial arts fighters who are gay. Because there's no problem with any of them kind of being openly, you know, you know, open about their sexuality or, you know, bringing their wives and their girlfriends or anything like that. But still, from the male side of sport, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's very closed in that respect over there. Because at the end of the day, America is a very conservative society, no matter what they like to say. Yeah, I mean, again, sport is just, I mean, the DNA of sport and how it's come about with you know, male athletes coming back first and then females coming in first. It says a lot around the machoism of the setup of elite sport in, you know, in, in um, working class sports like, like soccer, you know, uh, basketball, where if you, if you do come out at the top, level and you play in front of a crowd away at Stoke you're, you're in for, you know, it's not going to be easy it's like yeah. the, the fans are going to be on you, the media is going to be on you um, and I can understand why a lot of people, they, they never they never come out, not one has come out yet and uh, when they do and it's uh, someone who's elite that might you know, open the floodgates a little bit more but well, didn't still, the, um, still not coming around didn't the guy, uh, is he a Welsh rugby player? Gareth isn't yeah. he like the first openly gay rugby player but he's retired obviously yeah he came out um so Gareth 
can't remember his surname, but yeah, he came out quite recently and it was like at the back end of his career. Yeah. You know, you know it, it depends on the sport as well. So, and it depends where you are in your career in that sport as well. Exactly. Yeah. And I think if you, if you look at rugby, they say that if you compare rugby and football, they say that rugby is a, is a sport played by Hooli- uh, played by hooligans. Oh yes, I've heard by, this. Yes, yes. That's saying, yeah. Yes, it's Whereas played by hooligans, but watched by gentlemen. But uh, rugby's played by gentlemen, watched yeah. by hooligans or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I mean, there's there's something there around the rugby community where it's there's more empathy and you know you you don't hate the opposition. You're not gonna. There's no hooligan type. It's on the field. It's about the competition. It's on the field. Yeah, everyone has a beer after. There's that Commonwealth connection as well. With, Australia, South Africa, and all the countries that and play elite sport, there's a commonality. It's the yeah. same with fighting as well, right? You, you you smash each other's heads in for, you know, either 12 rounds or five rounds, whatever the sport is, MMA or boxing. And then, you know, yeah. sportsmanship dictates afterwards that it's, uh, you know, that it's, it's a hug and a kiss and a, and a well done after. Yeah. You know, and you leave the battle where the battle's meant to have commenced and, and, and finished, and that's it. Um, yeah, some mm-hmm. sports are, are, are much different. I saw something about uh you know the continued racism in football and just you know uh it was one of the black players just being like just i mean what th- banana peels thrown at on the field, yeah. i mean geez louise what are we talking about yeah. 2020 you know like we need anything else added on to it to to continue exactly. the mess that we're in and you know they'd walk off the pitch to, to protest and then they end up getting a red card on top of that and yeah a lot a lot of this lies with the people in power who are not you know kind of are not adapting to showing an example. You know, they'll, they'll give a £10,000 fine for something like that. And then they'll give like, a, you know, they'll, they'll ban a club for playing, you know, allowing the fans to come in if, yeah. if something else at them. It's just like two, it's like apples and oranges. And yeah, um, if they're not going to show any example, well, you, the fans are not going <laughs> yeah. to, they're just not going to react. Well, why would they? What incentive do they have, you know, to do that? Yeah. But you know, that's why I'm so proud of kind of being affiliated or at least aligned with the NBA from a fan's perspective, right? Because, you know, they're, they're head of, head of the NBA now, like, you know, they're, they're so progressive in what they do, the, the way they help in the community, the way they, you know, the WNBA and how inclusive that organization is. And, you know, it's just a really nice thing to see that they push those kind of social boundaries and always have and, and done it internationally. And, you know, and domestically as well, but there's a lot of catching up to do still, you know, and I think, I think the work that you guys are doing is, is testament to what can be done and what should be done more and what, what collaboration looks like, you know, when, you know, when there's a mission in play and, and some structure and organization and a community that's connected together. Um, So I think like, because I could sit here and talk about basketball with you all day long. Yeah. Well, so, um, uh, what I wanted to do was give you an opportunity to let people know what Laureus does and what you do for them. Because a lot of people may not know. I mean, uh, we'll get to the Mandela thing, which kind of put you guys on the map and everything like that. But if you could, just tell people what Laureus and Sport for Good is all about. Yeah, so we've been going now for 20 years. Actually, in three days, it's the 20th anniversary since the speech that Mandela did. So is it? perfect timing, right? Uh-huh, there yeah. you go. Happy anniversary. There'll be, there'll be something. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> there'll be something virtually happening for that. Um, so Laureus is essentially a funder. 
and you work in the field of using sport for development. Um, we support over 200 projects globally that use sport as a tool for social change. Um, so maybe I can give just an example of what sport for development actually means. Because that's where there's a big difference between just giving someone or giving a group of kids a football to play football as opposed to giving them a football to uh, learn something whilst playing football. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I did want to dig into the ecosystem of, of sport for development as well. So um, please, please go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sport for development is, it, as, a, as a sector is in its infancy. It's something that's been, you know, it, it can be ridiculed if you compare it to um, other causes in the world, um, sure. which, is, which is fine. You know, it's, it's not the priority. If you're going to compare hunger to making sure kids can play and, and you know, using sport and physical activity, you're going to obviously go and, and cure the hunger first, right? But sport is, sport for development is a tool to help feed into those kind of issues. Um, and it's, it's, not the, it's not the one and only tool to fix something. Um, an example of sport for development is, and I, I'll give you a, a good example of, of, of a project that I've, I've seen in Africa that we, we sponsor in Uganda. And um, this project is, is led by an organization called Tackle Africa. And essentially what they use is, is football to teach the kids and children in the communities about HIV and AIDS and relationships. And wow. they apply a curriculum to the sessions. So, for example, it's, it's uh, you know, being able to do a drill of, of two against one, passing the ball, and the defender is the one. And they will say that defender is... Um, is unprotected sex as an example okay and they would say you know they'll they'll do an they'll kind of um actually that example is is the person who's defending is the issue um and what they'll do is they'll get one person to try and get past that person nine out of ten times they just don't succeed because you know it's just too enclosed but then if you add someone else to it two against one they would say that, that your partner there is a relationship therapist or someone who will talk to you about HIV and AIDS or relationship issues. Naturally, they become more successful when they've passed a challenge. So they start to see the benefits of like being able to open up around talking around sex and, and HIV um, as a starting point. Uh, and then what they'll do is, is basically start to understand and challenge the stigma of HIV and AIDS. Yeah. So, you know, they've used sport to, to talk, to, to exemplify what it's like to, you know, make practical examples of good sex and good practice. But then they'll start to do an exercise after the session where they'll talk to each other and then they'll do a quiz about what they've learned. So they'll know that um, you can't get HIV from eating food. Yes. Because the stigma is big in these countries. There's, there's a lack of communication and, and advice available that people actually believe these things in these rural communities. And so these organizations that run these sessions will do that and help change mindsets. And then this helps people, this helps the children and young people who, who are now not afraid of the stigma to start opening up. They start to understand um, where the HIV testing centers are, centers are so they can start testing themselves uh, and not be afraid of testing themselves. Um, and know that you know those that have it. It's not a death sentence. That there is treatment, 
Um, and it, you know, a lot, you know, that's just an example of just introducing football in a curriculum. That it's absolutely to, incredible. It's yeah. absolutely incredible. The practical applications that can be developed just from the insertion of sport and the community that that thing can develop. And then the educational and societal outcomes that you can, you know, you, you can develop yeah. and you can, and you can see happen out of those things. I mean, it's just incredible. So like, that's an example of what laureates do. They go into the community, identify a problem, work with a coalition. How does it work? Yeah, so it's it's, it's a mix of both, really, because we, we definitely are not going to be able to, we don't want to go somewhere and say, this is the problem and we're going to fix it. Of it's course. all locally led. So what we do is we support programs like organizations that I just gave you, the Tackle Africa example. Yeah who are experts in, in those countries, who have relationships with people in those countries. They're essentially, they're, they're their own charities, they're their own NGOs. Gotcha. Uh, similar to like Tony, you know, Tony's got his- uh, Exactly. LBA, that's his organization. We would help him, we would fund him. Right. To, to make sure, you know, to help him deliver the curriculum. Um, but that being said, we're, we're more than just a funder. So my day-to-day -day role is obviously it's, it's it's essential that the funds get to the places that they need to get to. So organizations like Tackle Africa can run day-to-day -to -day and run their programming. But I'm also there to be a conduit between them and more opportunities for funding or more networks so they can share their curriculum, share their knowledge, um, develop more partnerships, more coalitions, and, and prove the model that they're doing is working. So it could just, it needs to be shouted about more. Um, and so it can become more self-sustainable in the community. Um, so that we, we play a big funder plus role. And, um, you know, I have a portfolio of projects that I look after. Um, some of them are in Africa. I've got some in Colombia okay. as well. And, and some in London. And All give me very different. I was going to say, give me some examples of the type of variety of these programs, because if that first one is anything to go off, I'm really intrigued on what else is going on with you guys and how you're actually getting into the communities and, and what sort of outcomes you're delivering. Yeah. So with, with uh, the one in London, a good example is, is one called Carney's Community. So it's a boxing club in um, Wandsworth. Okay. And essentially it's, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a boxing club slash youth club. Okay. And they, you know, they engage the local community. Loads of young kids go there to play, uh, to, you never play boxing, by the way, to practice <laughs> yeah, boxing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, Thank uh, you. <laughs> uh, to practice boxing, to, to work on their skills. But they, at the same time, it, you know, there's so many undercutting things that are being taught by stealth that the young people or even the coaches don't even know that they're doing. So a lot of, a lot of kids will go there, not just for the sake of, you know, getting better at boxing or getting fitter they're going there to see their friends they're going there to get out of the house you know there's um escape something stuff. escape something exactly and if you look at you know i'll touch on this a bit now about how we're handling the the coronavirus pandemic that has well that was one of the things i wanted spaces. to talk to you about yeah was how how the programs are being adapted during this uh during this period because obviously yeah. they're very very person to person you know, direct engagement yeah. related, that that's part of the success of a lot of these programs, right? So I'd be interested to find out 
um, how yeah. those things are being adapted to during this period. Yeah, and you know, the, the, yeah, I'll touch on that. And but with, with, with the way that Carnies works, is you know they've managed to adapt a mentoring program on top of what they're doing. So the coaches that they have, they actually come from the community as well. And now that they, you know, they have coaching qualifications in boxing, but they also have that credibility because they're from the same area as yes. the people in that area. And as you know, there's a kind of code that, you, you know, these, this, you put a policeman in there out of nowhere to, to talk to kids and say, you need to do this, that or the other. Yeah, it's just not going to cut it. You know, there's, no. there's trust issues, there's, there's history. Um, when it's around your local community, you have role models that will have credibility to be able to tell kids to stop doing certain things, uh, to go to school, that yeah. will cut a long way further. And these role models are turned into coaches, in turn, teach the young people in the community. And there's a lot of gang violence. And as you know, it's no secret with the knife crime that's happening in, in London. There, there was a lot of that happening in this area, Carnies. And, you know, when something bad happens, these guys are a pillar for the community, for parents to just come around and talk, have food. It's more than just coming there to do boxing you know they have a games room they have the table you know, that's the thing setting. it's it's more of a holistic it's a holistic support system right that's that's grassroots right. up it's it's and that's the whole thing that i love when i was when i was reading about laureus and finding out a little bit more about what they do is that it really is that coalition right i think that's like the best word for it is that there's this coalition yeah. and and you really are sort of the conduit or, or or sort of the central nervous system that everything can kind of branch in and out of to make those connection yeah. points happen it's 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 really incredible but that holistic approach is is absolutely the right way because the only way you're going to get people in these local communities to be receptive to any initiative that tells them to improve or change behavior or look at their behavior or whatever that may be just you've got somewhere to reach out to and this is okay this is a safe place or whatever that may be that can't be manufactured it can only be authentic and the only way it can be authentic is by having it be a grassroots coalition and then all of these other pieces on the on the side yeah exactly you know you hit the nail on the head having a coalition um, makes things you know it's not going to change everything overnight so the fact that Carnies is linked to us and we're linked to a project in New Orleans doesn't necessarily thing mean things you know happen overnight but there is knowledge that comes through us through our connections um, through experts in the fields of the things that we support that can help these projects that we fund and um, that's one of our strengths is being able to, um, you know, work globally, but really fixate ourselves locally when we need to because of the, the connections that we have. How you um, apply things is, is you know, is going to be different in every situation, but ultimately you're as good as the kind of the, the things that you surround yourself with, right? You're, you're, you're the total of the sum parts that you surround yourself with. There's a saying like that out there and, and having yeah. a network like that seems to be part of that ethos of, of how you get the best out of these programs, how you help these, you know, these charities in, in, you know, downtrodden places or, you know, d different places around the world. Yeah. And I think that's, um, it's important that we, we were realistic about what we can achieve. You know, we, we are not out there giving hundreds of millions of pounds a year and then just saying, right, we've done that. It's, yeah. it's more purposeful. It's, it's discussion led. It's like, you know, if you, if you use this money, what it, what will help? What would help you? Not what do we want you to do? And um, that's I mean, critical, where, right? Like, that's that's the critical part so of critical. it. Yeah, and and 
you know, respecting local knowledge, like I said earlier, we, we can't just go in there and say, here's two million, we want you to do this. It just doesn't work that way. It's, it's about respecting and understanding what these uh, communities need because they know what they need best and they should decide where those funds should go. And, and we always make a, you know, whenever we work with projects, it's just making sure that they are as transparent as they can be um, there's a lot of power dynamics in play when you're a funder. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of, uh, you, especially with a north-south global divide. So in Europe and the US, organizations will be a bit more open to say what they want. Yes. Whereas if you go to the global south, the African projects, South African projects, um, they rarely get opportunities to access such funds and so will react to the funder. So it's our job to make sure we change those uh, power plays and, and they get what they need. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're looking at other organizations, charities, initiatives to work with or to involve yourselves with, to look at putting funding in there, exploring that sort of, you know, there's got to be almost, you know, I, I speak of it in like a sales mentality because that's what I do kind of day to day, right? But it's almost like that business development angle of it who are we going to be working with next and why are we going to be working with them and 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 what does that process look like is there like what what does that process look like i'm just curious as to how yeah. you identify the trouble spots in the world because the the portfolio of programs that you have touches every single corner of this planet and i just wondered how that decision making comes about yeah i mean it's not easy it's probably it's not straightforward either sure it's the world there's there's so many people using sport for development, they probably don't even know it, you know? Um, yeah. You know, there's churches out there that will run a football session just to keep the kids entertained, but they don't really know that they're starting something that could help them translate Absolutely. more soft skills. Uh, so in that respect, you know, we, we do have a, a criteria to, to invite people to apply. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that we do try to to check is is their understanding of what sport for development is um we don't necessarily just go and fund organizations that are using sport for participation purposes only there has to be an angle as to why you're using sport to support disadvantaged young people and um those are one of the, the key things that we we look at but we also don't want to set people up to fail of course and when you have an organization and you run something with children, you have to make sure you have adequate safeguarding policies in place to be able to uh, protect the children, first and foremost. Uh, you need to be able to, it, you know, you'll need to have some sort of financial process to handle funds that come to you if you were successful. You don't want to receive a large amount of money and then it be too much to carry and, and not be able to manage it, that it does more harm than good. Course. Um, so there is a bit of a diagnostic that we'll, we'll do with, with uh, organizations when they apply. But at the same time, you know, we use that to help them understand where they need to develop. Uh, so it's not just, you know, if you, you haven't got a safeguarding policy, that's it. It's, this is how you would get a this. safeguarding policy. And these are, are the educators of the world that you need to be talking to or aligning with to do that sort of work. Right, exactly. So there's that business development does come alongside with development of the program and the impact that you have um and then ultimately it's, it's just about you know wh what the program does you know so the sport for development angle is really 
you know, what is the methodology? You know, how do they get from A to B? And, and, and understanding that uh, sometimes because it's global, you know, we, we're affected uh, depending on how much funds we have for a specific region. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's quite, it's a minefield out there. So, um, but we, we try to be as inclusive as possible. We also have another way of inviting organizations. We have a, a project called Model City. Okay. And um, this is basically a new way of funding where you involve organizations of an area to come together, identify what the key issue is in that area, mm. and then decide who gets funding when we open up a round. So they'll decide, they'll look at applications, they'll have to put their kind of, you know, they'll have to put their community hat on and, and recognize who is best for what, as opposed to what usually happens when we open a fund or a fund that comes around, everyone competes against each other. And this is more of creating that collaboration already as a basis point within the communities to say, Hey, why don't you communities come together yourself? You guys already know what the problems in the community are. Then you can come together as a group and apply and then allocate those funds if successful, as you see how they fit. Exactly. And, you know, we have this one in, in, in New Orleans, in Atlanta, and now in London. So in Hounslow and Barking and Haringey. Um, we have these we have these coalitions running, and the the thing that is interesting around all this is that, you know, when you go to these communities, there's people there who have been there for years, and they've seen projects come and go. They've yep. lost trust with politicians and councillors, and, and so when we go in there, we had to really walk through the fire to get our trust and and to prove that we're here for, you know, we really mean well to kind of make this work and make it owned by the local community, yeah. and you know that that's very different to just being a funder and throwing out a funding opportunity to someone and hiding behind a computer screen. Um, yeah. And I was, and I was going to ask you a little bit more about that because there are all of, and we talked about sort of the coalition element of it and the grassroots element of it, but there's, there's other pieces at play here. And I'm interested in like maybe when those pieces come into play, because obviously you guys have a massive ambassador program, right? Steph Curry. And I mean, the list, I, I won't even begin to start to name them all because there's like pages of them. Right. But how do all of these sort of f- pieces fit together? When do you like, is there a point where when you're accepting an application and you say, okay, I, there's like, there's an alignment here with this ambassador and this is how we can make this program work. I'm just, I'm just wondering about kind of logistics mm-hmm. of it and that sort of thing as well. Yeah. I mean, if, if an ambassador turns around and says, look, you know, we want to, this project means a lot to me and we, you know, be great for Laureus to support them. They, they still have to go through the process, you know? So um, even an ambassador that wants to support something that they know about would go through the same process as well. Right. Yeah. And exactly. does that, and uh, does every ambassador that you work with go through that process or do you guys actively approach folks that you would like to be ambassadors as well? Or is it both? So with, with the ambassadors, many of them are ambassadors or academy members for Laureus. And I guess, you know, Laureus is quite a big machine. You know, when you look yeah, at there's it, lots of parts, right? Lots of parts. But I would look at it as just free parts. So you have to sport for good angle, which is up where I work at. And that is the ethos of the whole organization is using sport for good. Yes. And we work with projects and we fund them, we help them, we support them. Then you have the academy and ambassadors section. Uh, the ambassadors are elite athletes, um, living legends of the game who 
effectively give up their time to advocate for what Sport for Good does. Yes. Some of them have charities. Some of them, you know, they, they have interests in, in projects around the world. And if they do that, they'll approach us and say, you know, well, maybe we could help them. But they'd still have to go through the same gotcha. process. Uh, but the, the, the time they give is, you know, make, raising awareness and um, advocating for Sport for Change. And, um, and then you've got the awards, which is, yes. you know, the high profile, um, what they call the, the Oscars of sport. And, and that would have been that, where everybody would have heard probably about Laureus because that's, you know, the famous kind of, you know, sport has the power to change the world speech by Mandela, right? Yeah, that's where it all began. And it's a platform that links, uh, you know, sport for good as well as elite sport. So, yeah. you know, the best sportsman gets to win something alongside the best sport for good project, for yes, example. Yes, And And, you know, I mentioned ambassadors and academy members. The academy members are a group of 69 retired athletes or legends who decide the winners of the awards. Ah. And that, that's what makes these awards a bit more special because it's decided by their peers. As it's not some journalists or some reporters or fans or anything like that. It's... No. Uh, it's your com it's your comrades, right, from around the sporting world. Yeah. yeah, but they get that they get that the, the final decisions are made up of votes from journalists. So there's a shortlist from journalists. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, can't leave them out. But right? the, oh, you can't leave them out. Yeah, <laughs> but ultimately, it does get the those athletes are the ones that will crown the winners. Oh, uh, that's um, cool. So yeah, it's a machine, big machine. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and in terms of oh, can you hear that? Yeah, okay. I heard it a little bit, but it's not enough to. Here, let me um, let me let me unplug and plug back in. Hang on one second, mate. Sorry about that. Can you hear me? Yeah. You can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. All good. All good. Okay. Cool. Um. um so sorry about that, mate. Uh, there's something wrong with my recorder, but I'll uh, I'll edit all of that out. Don't worry about that. Um, sorry, where were we? We were um, that really distracted me. Apologies for that. <laughs> no, that's um, fine. So uh, basically, it was the, the kind of the, the the machine of Laureus and the how yes, it works, of course. The parts. Um, but I just wanted to add with the awards, it's it's you know I don't know if you've had time to see the this year's awards, which happened in February. No, and, I haven't. Um, if you, if you do, you know, get get a chance to have a look at the awards and, and how that was run, even the highlights. And, and one of the biggest things that happened in those awards was um, the winner of the team of the year, which was the South African rugby team. Right, okay. And and their captain is a gentleman called Sia Khaleesi. And his story is, is, is amazing because he's captain of the World Cup winning rugby team. But he's, he came from the slums or the villages where, you know, he didn't have a TV uh, to play rugby. He didn't have that privilege to, you know, to, as, as his, his teammates, you know, they, they came from more affluent backgrounds to play rugby in private schools. So he made it to the top from the, and from he's always nothing. been very humble, but, he, but yeah, from nothing. But he used that uh, platform to accept the award, but also talk about the power of sport and how, you know, everything's influenced him and, and what the responsibility of the athlete role model is today. 
um, which, which you know, everything kind of links together from your grassroots sports to the elite sports and, and, and how things can, can change for someone. So, um, yeah, definitely recommend to have a look at that. I will, for sure. I did see that uh, I, when I was looking on the, on the website, I did see that the winners uh, were the South African team, um, but I haven't seen the awards yet. Um, wh- what I wanted to ask you about, it's funny because uh, th- these ambassadors, they, they take on some of this responsibility on their own, right? And I, I saw something or I heard something about one of your ambassadors. I think he's a triathlete in France or Spain. Um, and he raised like 200K doing like a triathlon or something in his house. It, it was it was amazing. Yeah. Do, you know, do you know anything about that? Yeah, so Jan Ferredo, I think I've mispronounced his name. So he's an ambassador for Laureus and yeah, he's a triathlete, uh, multiple world champion. And his idea was, right, I'm going to do a triathlon in my house and raise funds for Laureus Sport for Good. Amazing. And it's incredible. I mean, you know, this is, to, to, to do that, number one, is, is immense. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to sit on a bike on a treadmill and, and, you know, I've never done a triathlon in my life, maybe one day, but I don't intend to do one right now. But, um, he's, he really kind of showed the innovation of, of how fundraising can happen. Um, through athletes that things like the London Marathon or um, events that happen outside can happen indoors and can happen digitally. Yes. Everything that's happening right now is just evolving. Look at us right now. You know, this is a different way of working, right? And, um, you know, he he came up with this idea and the the kind of connections that he has as an athlete help reach and raise those kind of funds as well and of course a lot of athletes a lot of athletes can learn from that and um yeah he's the, another example is um what's happened with the london marathon so you know they knew that they wouldn't be able to run it this year and what they did was run a 2.6 challenge obviously 26 miles is a marathon so they yes. called this the 2.6 challenge and just said to everyone to raise funds doing something around the num the number 2.6 yeah some people would crawl for 26 laps i don't know some there's different and um a lot of athletes have jumped on that bandwagon as well and, and have gotten involved so these ambassadors you have to respect and understand that some of them are still competing and trying to keep fit yeah and they might not be in a place right now to focus on fundraising or supporting the charity but their name and their brand and the, the reach that they have can really kind of connect people to us to understand the work that we do um, and then ultimately a lot of these athletes can prepare for retirement and start thinking, how can I use my name to, to help those before me? And, you know, someone like Roger Federer won the Laureus Sportsman Award a couple of years ago. Right. And he came on, he came on the stage and he said, you know, I, you know, the next stage of his career, he wants to be better known for his philanthropy work rather than his tennis, which is, <laughs> really hard to do but you know it, it gives him a name uh, and some things to think about absolutely and it goes to the it goes to the conversation we were having earlier about kobe and and lebron and, and that next evolution of athletes and what they're recognizing you know the power of sport can do not only from their own ascension and seeing where some of these folks come, have come from themselves and recognizing how they can pass that on but just that 
that evolution of, of what an athlete is overall. An athlete doesn't have to have a seven-year lifespan and then be gone and then be broken three years like a lot of the NFL players are, or, you know, so on and so forth. There's a, there's a way that you can propel yourself out of sport and still be successful. Although, you know, a massive yeah. task to be more recognized for his tennis than uh, or his uh, fundraising than his tennis. But, you know, exactly. if, anybody, if anybody can do it, it's, it's a guy like that, you know. But what you were saying there is really interesting and it kind of brings me on to something that we touched on earlier but I want to talk about again, and that's being able to react digitally uh, and react in times where the landscape is changing completely. And I mentioned it before because I said, obviously, your programs are very tactile. It's about community. It's about interacting with one another. It's about really boots on the ground, right? Face-to-face interaction, mm-hmm. person-to-person interaction. So much of that, yeah. of uh, so much of your programming, kind of, and, and the mentality behind that is effectively stopped now, right? That that's, that's obviously can't happen now. So how, if at all, can, can and are these programs evolving or adapting to COVID and what COVID is making us all do, which is stay away from each other? Yeah, yeah I mean, you're totally right. Everything has shut down, you know? There's um, around 3 billion people now in total lockdown. You know, there's, there's children and young people who, cannot play with their friends or, you know, they're stuck at home. Um, but a lot of projects have come to us asking for those kind of supports. Like, what do we do now? Yeah. Luckily, because of the network we have, we've been provided with resources. You know, this shows good innovation on the part of these projects. And um, a lot of these projects, especially in Asia, who are now kind of in the next stage of lockdown and yeah, that's right. getting back to normal. We've, we're learning from them about how they're coming back to normal, how they're adapting, um, how they're changing things. There's a project in uh, Cambodia which is doing, um, you know, they've they've made up rules for social distance football. Is and, that right? You know, it's got it's got it's a, and I, you know I, I could bring this over to you. It's really interesting. They they map it all out and it's got its rules and everything. And you know, there's there's things that they're recovering, they're they're evolving to for the next steps. But in terms of like how projects are ad- adapting, it's everything's going online, everything's virtual. Um, you know, a lot of the projects that we support, sport was the thing, you know, being able to have that one-to-one uh, communication with someone to do an exercise, to engage with friends was pivotal. Uh, but a lot of organizations now, a lot of these young people have access to their phones or a laptop. Um, they've managed to create their curriculum and put it online. Mm-hmm. And so they now are starting to um, provide uh, curriculum in terms of you know, managing anxiety, um, following exercises, uh, looking after your mental health at home, but applying it to sport. Um, I'm sure you've seen the kind of the Joe Wicks stuff. I have, so, yeah, of course. You know, online physical activity lessons. Um, you know, these things are becoming more popular, and um, it's not just for the children and young people as well. It's providing resources for parents, of course, because they are now taking on the role of being that mentor, that coach. And, you know, you have to be quite respectful. It's, it's a tough job. You can't just come out there and just be a football coach and expect no. it to be the same as, as a youth club. But um, you give them the, the tools to do that. And the staff at these projects are working directly with these parents and these children to do as much as they can to, to, keep, to keep the activities going. At the same time, again, not everyone has laptops. Of course. And, yeah. uh, and mobile phones. Or, or data, you know, and 
uh, in Africa, for example, you know, that we have a project that what they use is, is surf therapy. So they work in Cape Town with uh, children from in poor areas and they use surfing to work with children who have autism and oh, uh, wow. you know, they have different ways. It's, it's incredible, you know, they have different ways of kind of making them express how they feel um, and, and then they apply their curriculum to that. And with that being stopped, you know, they have to kind of think of ways to still engage these children who just don't have access to laptops or, or mobile phones. So yeah. one of the things that they're working on is developing like socially distanced mentoring and safeguarding themselves and the household to come near a house and be able to engage with those children. Um, it's tough, but you know, it's everything's evolving and the role of Laureus as well is, is to, to help um, organizations apply for funds to, to, to purchase laptops, to purchase these this equipment so they can share with, with children and young people. And we've recently opened up a Sport for Good response fund okay. last week, which is for organizations globally to apply for up to 10,000 euros. That will help them adapt their programming or help their organization report costs in response to what's going on now. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I suppose you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of these things are being migrated online as a natural kind of, you know, uh, response to what's going on. They've had to adapt or, you know, cease to exist in a lot of respects. Um, but obviously there's, I, I know you work with, you know, groups that are dealing with violence and domestic violence as well. And are you finding or hearing that those kind of those digital, those remote applications of how to keep some of these programs going and, and you know, the organizers engage with the participants, is that having is that having an effect on some of those individuals as well? Because they're the more sensitive individuals, right? The ones that deal with domestic violence or, you know, substance abuse in the home and using your programs and the programs that you work with to get out of the home, physically out of the home, instead of, you know, it's one thing to kind of immerse yourself in a screen and do all of that, but there's another thing to actually get out of that environment and, and get face to face, you know, with somebody yeah. for a few moments. Yeah, I mean these these communities, these projects, they're safe spaces. Yes, you know they're they're not your leisure center, or, you know where sport just happens. This is a different type of uh, engagement, and even you know just touching on your point, there's still risks with children and young people accessing things online to mm. do these curriculums. You know, there's with more engagement online brings more risk to grooming um, and, and things of that nature for of children course. and young people. Or, or, or for parents who are just don't understand how, how the internet works or how to safeguard their children. So those things we have to be mindful of. And, and luckily, you know, we have resources from our partners who have had to combat that as well. Yeah. Um, the, the, the kind of, you know, as you say, looking at a screen and, and following an exercise, and it's not the same as playing football with, with friends. You know, it's not the same competitive nature or element. And, you know, there's going to be, uh, higher levels of, of anxiety that we're already seeing. You know, there's there's higher levels of calls to domestic violence uh, phone lines yeah. um, because of this. Uh, I think there's, you know, we have we have this start this research saying in Germany there's been like a 17% increase in that, and it just goes to show you know you can bring something to the house and you can have all the curriculum and, and everything there, but it's just not the same environment. And, and that's the thing, right? So as, as much as, you know, digital transformations might help 
reach or, you know, get to people who might, you know, might be hard to reach or, or make it, you know, something that can continue under precarious circumstances like we're in now, there's always going to be a need for that face-to-face yeah. boots on the ground initiative, right? So I bet you guys can't wait for it to kind of get back to normal and, and start seeing those things come to life again, right? Yeah, we can't wait. And um, I think it's, you know, this sport, as Mandela did say, it, it does have the power to do a lot of things, you know, it, it, it's a conduit for stuff. It's a conduit um, for everything. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, and it's not just sport participation-wise, it's if you coach, if you're a referee, Definitely. if you're the guy who, who does, brings out the cones and I mean, up, even, you know, even if we look at, gir- yeah, but even if we look at girls and, and girls in sport, for instance, in some of these areas where, you know, they're not even allowed to participate in some respects, you know, and and initiating programs where it brings females in because, you know, like any, you know, wise person has said, and there's been tons of people who have said, it, if you want to raise a, a society up, you make sure that you empower their women. And, uh, and I know a lot of your programs are, are focused on that as well, which is, which is amazing to see because so many of these societies in these areas of the world need that, you know, massively. Yeah. I think that, yeah, you, that just reminds me of the kind of every, every region has a different main issue and, you know, from, from UK, from your, you know, your gang violence to, to Africa, where it's around HIV and AIDS. Yeah. Colombia is, is a prime example of what you said about women in sport. And, you know, we have programs there that use uh, sport to get women to participate and change the, the perception that they should just be in the kitchen. You know, they, they live 100%. in households where their husbands um, are violent or drunk and will want them to stay at home whilst they work and, and just cannot accept the notion of them going out and taking part in competitive sport or being yeah. something more than just a you know housewife um but yeah it's it, it, it's also a good time to adapt to the new world as well because like you like you're seeing you know when everyone everything goes back to normal you don't have to be in the office every day you know no. <laughs> you, you, you can you can do things online and you can balance it up with, with visiting people at the same time absolutely and i think technology I think that's it. I think, you know, it's, I spoke to somebody about this, you know, a a little while ago, and it's not, it's, it's, it's not the technology, it's the application of the technology, you know, this can be, you know, the greatest learning tool in the world, or it can be the biggest time waster in the world, it's completely up to the user, you know, and and so much of that is the application of the technology. And, you know, I don't want to be doing 15 zoom quizzes a week or whatever, but it's, it's allowed me to develop a video podcast off the back of it. And it's allowed me to talk to people like yourself who have, you know, really interesting stories and really, really, you know, impactful stories to tell. And and that's the main passion for me. So it's about the embracing of that technology rather than just the, you know, manipulation or wastage of that technology. Yeah, definitely. So I like to, and I, I won't jump ahead if there's more that you want to tell me about or if there's anything else that you want to cover. And I definitely want to have more of these conversations with you because I think if whether we're talking about basketball or whether we're talking about Laureus, we could probably go on for quite a while. But I'm always conscious of kind of keeping it within a time frame. Um, one of the things I like to do with all the people I have conversations with is find out a little bit more about them kind of underneath the surface. And... Mm. I don't know if you ever remember the show uh, Inside the Actor's Studio. It was an American show uh, yeah. from New York University. And the host used to interview every famous actor, director you can think of. And he used to ask them 10 questions at the end of every interview. Yeah. Remember? I, re- I remember that. And you know what I remember about that? There was, um, 
I used to, I, I'd catch it. I was just thought it used to be on Sky Arts or something. Yeah, that's right. I always, and I was like, I don't know if I was just caught up in the, in the class classiness of it. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, this is, it's very quiet. It's very, you know, there's a there's a learned crowd that are yeah. interacting and they're listening and you know. And then there was there was one clip where I saw a young Bradley Cooper asking questions to De Niro. I think it was De Niro. Yeah. And then. You know, I, I love that kind of, I love that, you know, you can kind of see things that happened before someone, you know, you don't know what that conversation did for him. And, well, and he ended up being on the show together, didn't they? Well, that was it. He said that that was a seminal moment in, in knowing that he was on the right track and that yeah. he could actually go forward. He was he was in the right headspace to kind of go forward, but he still never imagined, you know, what, what would come. And he'd be in, you know, in a film with him or multiple films with him like 10 years later, <laughs> you know, it's just, inc it's insane. Um, but the host of that show, James Lipton, he recently passed away and he used to host that, he hosted that uh, show and, you know, he was well, you know, revered in, the, in that industry himself. But he used to ask 10 questions at the every, at the end of every interview. And the point of the questions was just to get an immediate response back to kind of understand more about the personality of the person. So there's 10 right. questions. They're not controversial, obviously, because he wouldn't be asking them to Al Pacino and people. Depends, like, depends what I say, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's an element of your response on that as well. But if you don't, if, if you don't want to do it, we don't have to do it. It's completely optional, but I tend to just throw it out there at the end of all my conversations. Let's do it. Cool. Sounds like fun. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask the questions. You answer, we move on. That's it. Yeah. So there's no feedback okay. from me on those. <laughs> right. All right. So question one. What's your favorite word? Exceptional. What's your least favorite word? <laughs> the C word. <laughs> okay. What, <laughs> creatively, spiritually, or emotionally, what turns you on? Passion. And what turns you off? Uh, nonchalant behavior. Um, yeah, just meh. Nice. Might have already covered it. What's your favorite curse word? <laughs> Probably different variations of the word bitch. So, <laughs> so biatch. <laughs> That's always a good one. Nice. Um, what sound or noise do you love? Sneakers on a basketball court. Nice. What sound or noise do you hate? Ooh. The obvious one. I, ju I just hate anything that I can hear is touching, you know, when something dry touches another thing dry. Oh, yeah. Just, it just, you know, it just doesn't, yeah, doesn't sit well with me. <laughs> <laughs> What profession, other than what you're doing now, would you love to try? I would have loved to made it as a as a boxer. I think, yeah, definitely. That's a story for another conversation, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, what profession? Uh, 
that's the one. Boxing's a big thing, yeah. Boxing's big in my life, yeah. Oh, mate, we'll have to do, uh, we'll have to get together again and we'll do something that's uh, completely separate to this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what profession could you absolutely not do? Lawyer, you know. <laughs> so to life, you know, when you know someone's lying and they're saying, I'm not lying, and you've got to go out there and do that, you have to do that job. Yeah, you got you have to be made of something else, no matter how much money you're getting. Um, skillful, but yeah, your morals little, come into play. Little PC, you're gone, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Final question for you: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? <laughs> it has to be something like, "What time do you call this?" Or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I like to see a bit of. Like comedy and a bit of a, yeah, bit of edginess from from him. Uh, what time you call this? Just, yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, excellent. Man. That's really good. <laughs> or, or your, your your name's not on the list. I don't know. So. <laughs> Wrong line. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic, mate. Um, listen, tell people where they can find out more about Laureus, um, how they can get involved if they wanted to get involved, uh, what they should be checking out, any social handles you want to point people towards. Please, uh, please let people know. Yeah, I, I also wanted to just add, you know, I, just to kind of give you a bit of background about myself. It's it's important in terms of how I got into the industry. You know, I was a product of those kids that would go to play basketball in the West London area and have no clue about sport. And then you just get a couple of good words from the coach saying, "Oh, you could you could improve on this, or you could do that." But you didn't hear much outside of you know this court and that dragged me into sport for development and you know to see change and confidence and if you live it and you experience it you can do wonderful things when you choose that route in your life to to continue supporting the things that supported you and absolutely um, I, I would always advise people to to kind of find that passion and run with it and see because you have that empathy with what you're trying to do and um it, it made a big yeah. difference in my life i i mean i found basketball at what was it sort of 12 and that got me out of a house that you know I didn't necessarily want to be in or you know away from mm. people that I, I, I didn't choose to be around and, and had to be around and, and would prefer not to be around and you know some of those community it wasn't anything like what Laureus is doing but they were small little you know little just community groups and community basketball leagues and things like that and you know it, it made no end of difference to my life and that's why when I get the chance to speak to someone like yourself or someone like Tony or, you know, people who are, are putting this mission first and foremost in their life, either by starting a charity themselves or working for an organization like Laureus, it's, uh, you know, it's always a pleasure for me to talk to people who, you know, who actually give a shit and, and want to try to make a difference when so many people are just seem to be coasting on this journey. Yeah. And uh, there's so much to be done and, and so many ways in your own little space of the planet you can actually do some help yeah yeah it's it's uh it's 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 more of a calling really you know you don't you don't really jump into stuff like this for the money no uh, let's be honest it's it's you have you have to have those those links that will um help you see change in other people regard you know just the sector in general not just sport for development it's you know there's people out there who really like you say they do give a shit and they are doing those extra hours after they do their normal job 
Yeah. They're being parents, people that didn't have parents. They're being that mentor or listening to people that are not heard. And um, those things go a long way. So, and look what they can yeah. lead to, right? They can, they can lead to, you know, the next cycle of help coming along and, and coming down the path. So exactly. it's, uh, you know, it's an amazing thing. And I think what you're a part of is, is an amazing organization that does, you know, fantastic work. Um, it's, yeah, it's just a pleasure to see. And, and I'm really, I'm really glad that Tony introduced us and, and we finally managed to kind of get some time together. And, and like I said to you before, man, I really want to uh, definitely do it again because I think there's a there's there's a whole yeah. other conversation that we can have. Um, but uh, yeah, if you wanna if you wanna let people know um, where where they can get at you, then uh, then uh, please let them know. Any again, any social, any websites, anything like that. Yeah, sure. So uh, if you wanna get hold of me, you can uh, get hold of me on my Twitter handle, which is at Parker Sport. And um, if you wanna find out more about Laureus, it's laureus.com. Um, find out all the different aspects of Laureus. But if you want to focus more on Laureus Sport for Good, then you can go to the same website and just click on the Sport for Good link. Um, my phone number. <laughs> I <guess> I <laughs> Don't put your phone number out there. Are you crazy? <laughs> You're crazy. No, You're crazy. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, so Parker Sport is probably the best way to get hold of me, but definitely check out Laureus.com. Yeah, and the website's really clear and, and really easy to navigate as well. And there's a ton of great stuff on there. So, um, Lee, thank you so much, mate. I really appreciate it. I think it'll be really good. When, when things go back to normal, what I'm yeah. going to do is gonna, I'll, I'll bring you to one of the projects. Mate. So that, you, can, you can do a podcast with a leader. You can speak to some of the, the young people and, and get involved. And That would be incredible, and I would love to do that. Yeah. I would love to do that. That would be amazing. Um, well, listen, let's stay in touch um, after this. And um, again, mate, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been, it's been awesome. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks, mate.